You know, I'm grateful that God allowed uh, me to go with 17 other people um, back to Israel and now for the third time, and we're already looking and planning on the, on the next trip, and so that's, that's exciting. But every time I go, there are new experiences for me. Even when we go to some of the same places that we've been, you know, now for three times, um, it is still so new. And what we try to do when we, when we go to these different areas is we try to bring Scripture to, to light in that particular area. The events that took place in that area or near that area, we try to bring the, the Scripture into it. So not to bring Scripture alive, but really to bring us alive to Scripture. We connect God's Word to what we're experiencing and we're seeing and, and it, is a, it is a real joy to tell the old, old story again, but to be able to tell it in, in that new context, a story of God's love, story of God's people, and a story of God's promises. Uh, if you ever go or if you've ever been, you know that, that it is called the Holy Land. And I want you to know something. Um, when you get there, it's just dirt, the land itself, you can scoop up a handful, and, and it's not itself holy. And I don't want us to be misled, or I don't want us to misunderstand this when we, when we come to, to talk about the holy land. What is it that makes that land holy? What makes that land holy is because God chose to do something in a particular place with a particular people. And we can find that on a map, and our feet can walk that place. It is not holy because of the dirt. It is holy because of God's action and God's presence among that people. And for us who are followers of Jesus Christ, it has a holiness because that is where Jesus walked. It is where he taught. It is where he performed miracles. It was in that land that Jesus was rejected, that Jesus was betrayed, that Jesus was crucified, that Jesus was buried, that Jesus rose again, and that Jesus promised that he would come again in an hour that is unknown to us, but is certain. And each time Nancy and I have gone, one of the meaningful times that we have is to go to a place that is called the Garden Tomb, and to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to celebrate communion there. The Garden Tomb is one of two sites in, in Israel near Jerusalem that they believe Jesus was, was crucified and, and buried and resurrected in, in perhaps one of those two sites. Now, we don't know this for certain, uh, but there's certain you know, arguments and evidences for each of those. The other site, other than the Garden Tomb, would be the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. That is the hardest word for me, sepulchre. That's, that's what we're talking about. And, uh, but we, we went to both places. One is, a, can I just say this, one is a circus. When you go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, it is, I mean, it, I, when I say it's a circus, I'm not talking about it's got seals and elephants and, you know, lions and stuff like that. I'm just talking, you know, all the numbers of people who are gathered there and, you know, some of their, their antics in being in that place 
really is kind of over the top. And so it's almost a relief when you go to the garden tomb because it is so much more serene and so much more calm than being in the church of the Holy Sepulchre. But, you know, we went and we celebrated. We would have never been able to celebrate communion in, in the church setting um, because, you know, basically what happened is if there was a site that was considered to be, be holy, a site that where Jesus did something, then they, you know, people built a church on top of it. Well, the garden tomb's a little bit different. Uh, Charles Gordon, General Charles Gordon, moved to Jerusalem in 1888. He was good friends with Horatio Spafford. Some of you know the name Horatio Spafford. He wrote what hymn? It is well with my soul. And he wrote it out of a deep tragedy in his own life. Um, and, but he moved to Israel and uh, Charles Gordon was there visiting with him, and he went up onto the, on, into the old city of Jerusalem, up on the kind of the corner of the northern part of the wall, and he looked out, and, and what he saw was an outcropping of rock, an escarpment of rock that, that looked very much like a skull. I'm going to put up an image. Oh, here, let, go ahead and put that image up. I want to show you this image. Now, I didn't take this. This is actually from kind of an older picture. You can see it's got a couple of camels in it. Uh, this is a little bit older picture, and this is before the bus station was built. If you've ever been there, you know about the bus station. Uh, there's an Arab bus station, Palestinian bus station, built right under this. But if you can look up onto this image, you see where I've circled. You see what looks kind of like a couple of eyes in a, in a skull, okay? And you don't get really get the full view, but there is there, a little bit of a nose and a little bit of a mouth that, that you don't capture from this. But when he looked out, he saw this, and it looked a little bit like a, a skull. And he proposed that this was the place. This was Golgotha, which means what? The place of the skull. And so he said, well, perhaps this is the place where... Where, where Jesus was crucified. And according to the, the biblical story, when Jesus was crucified, he was then buried in a nearby garden tomb. And the arrow that you see pointing down, downward there, it's kind of hard for you to see from this distance, but there was a tomb, an empty tomb, that was found in this place as well. And the conclusion that he drew is that this was the place where Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected. Now, he was not the first person to argue that this was the place. Even before the tomb was found, which was found in 1867, in 1842, a, a German scholar named Otto Thinius suggested it was a place after he saw this rocky hillside that kind of looked like a skull. And I don't want to bombard you with too, too much information here this morning because this is not a, a lecture, but um, this was also a place, according to Jewish tradition, where stonings would have taken place outside the wall. It was already a place of execution. In fact, Christian tradition uh, states that this was the place where Stephen was stoned. And so it was already a place known for execution. And so it's not a, a big leap to assume that the Romans may too have chosen this place, a place already known for execution, to do their particularly cruel kind of execution, which was crucifixion. 
Now, it was in this place, this garden tomb, and, and we, don't, we don't know if that was, we, we really don't know that this was the place. But it was in this place, this garden tomb, that all 18 of us who went on this trip gathered in a small chapel to remember the victory of Jesus. Now, right next to us was another group, and I don't know exactly what their language was. I think it was Portuguese. And I, they may have been Portuguese Pentecostals because they were, they were good and loud. Okay, we could learn something from the Pentecostals there or from the Portuguese, either way. Uh, but they were good and loud in their singing. It was just, just over the top, and it was beautiful. But we, we were able to pull apart a little bit, and we were able to celebrate communion there and to celebrate the victory of Jesus in our lives. And today, we are, we are not in Jerusalem. We're not at the garden tomb, but today we have the opportunity to celebrate the victory of Jesus in the elements that we have on this table. And it really does not matter the distance we are from a place like Jerusalem or any other place that's considered holy. The reality is that Jesus is just as near to us here as he would be there. And this is something I... Listen, I would love for all of you to be able to go and to experience that trip to the Holy Land. But I want to let you know, even if your feet never touch ground in Israel, ever, that doesn't mean you're far from God. As we were there, we, uh, we visited the Western Wall. For many of you, you know the Western Wall is part of the, um, the retaining wall the, of the Temple Mount. Now on top of that are, are two mosques. But that you will see a number of Jews, very devout Jews, who are kind of crowded over into a corner as close as they can get to the Holy of Holies in their estimation, and, and they are praying there. And it is, it's a constant thing that takes place. And, and many people have gone and put prayer requests in the wall. There are cracks in between some of the stones, and you can place a prayer request there. But they think, you know, my prayers, I'm getting closer to God because I'm right here as close to the Holy of Holies as I can get. And it is at one point inspiring, but at another point, it is so discouraging. Because you're no closer to God when you're standing there against that western wall with your hand or your head placed against that wall you are no closer to God there and then than you are here or even in your own home we have this this beauty of of God's ever presence with us and we can celebrate the victory of Jesus no matter where we are and so we enter into a, a really special time here. And I want to I share God's word with you this morning from Luke's gospel, the 22nd chapter, as he institutes what we call the Lord's Supper. We begin with verse 14, which says, and when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until uh, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you 
that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they begin to question one another of which, of one, which one it was going to be, who was going to do this. We'll, we'll end God's reading, the reading of God's word there, but I want you to go back to this meal. I want you to think about what was taking place. They celebrate the Passover. And I think if you've been in church, you understand what the Passover is, but what Jesus was doing was a literal transformation of this meal. For we're not here today to celebrate the Passover. That's not what we're doing. We're celebrating something entirely different, a new covenant that is given to us in the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, at that Passover, there would be a a lamb that would be sacrificed. Uh, That lamb uh, would be a lamb without spot, without blemish, the Passover lamb. And the high priest would take the blood of that into the Holy of Holies, where at one time, Again, it, it was during the time of Jesus, the Ark of the Covenant was not there, but at one time he would sprinkle the blood from that lamb on, on that Ark and he would come out. He was only allowed to go in the one, one time during, during that, that feast. We have another lamb. The lamb we celebrate is not a four-legged lamb, but the Lamb of God. John the Baptist would point to him and and declare, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus, we are told, is the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the earth. That is the Lamb that we celebrate today. The Lamb who laid down his life and shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. In the Passover, they remembered a deliverance. What was that deliverance? It was deliverance from slavery in Egypt. They celebrated that in the Passover meal. If, you, if you've been to a, a Seder or if you've been to a, a, Christian, um, uh, represent, you know, a Christian service that, that was kind of modeled on the Seder, you know that that deliverance from Egypt, that deliverance from bondage is, is the theme that runs throughout this, that God delivered the people to bring them to a a new land, the promised land. For us, our deliverance is different, isn't it? We weren't delivered from slavery in Egypt. We were delivered from slavery to sin, from bondage to sin. And we aren't given a land that can be found on a map with coordinates and you know starting points and ending points. What we're told is what we have been given, our inheritance, our promised land is a, a new heaven and a new earth. A home not made with human hands, but eternal in the heavens. That is our promise. That is our, our hope. And so when Jesus came with his disciples around that table, they celebrated Passover, but he would say, listen, this is is my body 
He would take the cup and he would say, this is my blood. He infused those well-known elements with absolutely a, a new meaning and a new power and a new conviction because it's a new covenant. On the table before you is unleavened bread. Why? Well, in the Passover, it said that they had to take unleavened bread with them because they didn't have time. Um, you know, for us, we can go to the store and we can buy a loaf of bread and, and it's already been, you know, it's already nice and soft and big and puffy and we can take that bread with us. Unleavened bread is this, this flat type of bread. It, it has no yeast in it. When you put yeast in bread, it takes time for it to, to rise. If any of you have made bread, you know the process. Uh, Nancy doesn't do this, but my daughter makes, makes bread. She enjoys making bread, and so we'll go and we'll see that she's got a, a, a tin and, and there's a cloth draped over it. She's waiting for the, the bread to rise. In the Passover, there was no time. They had to get out of Dodge. They had to leave, and so the unleavened bread was a representation of them of the, 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 this expeditious manner in which they had to leave Egypt. But in Scripture, so often leaven in bread, the yeast in bread that makes it rise, the yeast is used for sin. It is used for corruption that, that permeates the entire loaf. That little bit of yeast, that little bit of leaven will raise the whole loaf. And it's compared to sin. And, and here's what we know. And this is why for us, it is not simply that we're remembering that the, the Jews, the Hebrew people had to leave Egypt in a hurry. And that's why we have unleavened bread. But the reason we have it here is to remind us that Jesus had no sin. He had no corruption. He was perfect in all his ways. Because it was only a perfect sacrifice that could pay the price for our sins. The cup that we have before us filled with the, the fruit of the vine, that's a way for Baptists to get around the wine thing. Well, you're getting grape juice, okay? You're getting, you're getting grape juice. Many traditions, they, they use wine. They're required to use wine to do this. But it, since it is symbolic, we've, we've got grape juice here. But when you when you... When I pick up my cup or when you, you pick up your cup, you take a look, this, this deep red color here, it is a reminder to us of the blood that was shed for us. This is not the blood that was spread over the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over those homes in Egypt. The blood that we remember is the blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins, the very blood of the Son of God who gave himself for us and so when we take this we're remembering a perfect sacrifice and and blood that was shed for us and and when this this is what Jesus said this is my this is my body this is my blood he was not saying that this is literally his body right here he's not saying this is literally his blood some traditions believe that that once it's blessed it literally becomes the body and the blood of Jesus we're not saying that what we're saying today is these Jesus saying this is a symbol for you something to remember the significance of my sacrifice and my resurrection now folks this is an old old story it is 2,000 years old. 
And the roots of it go further back than that because the Jews celebrated Passover for over 1,400 years before this last supper that Jesus had with his disciples. It is an old, old story, but I want you to know something. This is my story. When I stand here and I talk about this bread and this cup, I'm talking about my story. Because Jesus bled and died, he gave his life on Calvary's cross for my salvation. And if you are in Christ, guess what? It is your story. It is your story. You're proclaiming your story when you take of this bread, your story when you take of this cup. And for some of you who are not in Christ, let me tell you, this old, old story could be your new story. It could be your story today. As you come to receive what Jesus already done for you. In, in our small group this morning, we were, we were talking about what the gospel is. And, and the gospel itself, the word means good news. And, and listen, we live in a world that could use a little good news, right? But it's not just any good news. We get some good news. Every, you know, every day, I don't have my phone with me, my phone's over there. Almost every day we get pictures or we get videos of our grandkids and they're doing something new. They're, 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 they're trying to talk. They're trying to imitate words. They're, they're trying to walk. They're trying to crawl. They're do, trying to do all these things. They're trying to do silly things like climbing a tub of, 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 of Hot Wheel cars or something. You know. But if for us, it's good news. Hey, we're getting this good news. But I can tell you there's a better news. There's the greatest news of all. And that is that there's a God in heaven who loves you deeply and whose love for you, even though you are a sinner. And listen, I'm not trying to be offensive. Well, the Bible says that we all sin and come short of the glory of God. We all have a sin problem. But there's a God in heaven who loved us so much that even though we were lost in our sin and, and dead in our sin, that God sent his son to die on a cross to pay the price for sin, the perfect lamb of God, sacrificed that we might be cleansed and have life eternal. And listen, if you need that today, then it is available for you. Today is the day of salvation. It can be yours if you would trust in Jesus Christ and the reality is I didn't deserve it and I don't care how good you are you didn't deserve it either the only thing that I added to my salvation was the sin that made it necessary that's all I could bring we sing that great hymn just as I am right basically we're saying I'm completely lost I'm completely separated from you God I have no hope of salvation I can't do anything to earn my salvation I can't do anything to deserve my salvation but because you are infinitely loving and gracious and merciful and righteous you have done everything that is necessary for my salvation when Jesus was hung on the cross what did he declare it is finished No longer do we need to go back to the temple over and over and over again and, and sacrifice lambs and sacrifice bulls and sacrifice doves. No longer do we have to go through this whole process of pouring out gallons and gallons and gallons of blood. No, uh, Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. 
And that's what we celebrate at this table. And for those of us who are in Christ, this is our victory. A Savior who bled and died for us, who was buried and who bodily rose from the tomb to give us new life in Him. This is my story. This is your story. This is my song. It's the reason I sing. And this too is your song. In fact, would you help me with this chorus? This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long.